Welcome back to Superthank, a podcast about gratitude. This is part two of our fourth annual airing of grievances. If you haven't listened to part one, be sure to go back and check it out. We'll pick up where we left off with Andy Main. Andy is a Portland-based comedian, writer, artist, producer, and host of her monthly show, Revolution Comedy, which organizes fundraisers for progressive causes like Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and Don't Shoot PDX. Heads up, this next story contains strong language. All right, so this is about grievances and gratitude. Uh, First of all, I'm so thankful to be a comedian. Like, uh, I'm good at talking to people now. I didn't used to be good at talking to people. (laughs) You bomb enough, and then you realize the stakes in any regular conversation are so low, you can just keep talking. (laughs) It's fucking fine. No one cares. Um... Comedy's also ruined my life, but that's fine because my previous life sucked, so who cares? (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm going to tell a story about events that happened to me over the summertime and it's it's about the in the the underbelly of comedy the rape culture of comedy the ethics of being a comedian um i was friends with a dude named tj miller have you guys heard of him before Yeah. yeah he's kind of a piece of shit uh he he helped my career a lot he really did a lot he put me on shows he liked me when i was young as a comedian and uh helped me out and then um it turned out that he's an abusive individual um so like this uh this essay broke out from the daily beast they did a report um interviewing a woman that he abused and then he was going to be at helium the comedy club i work at two months later (laughs) and uh he asked me to open for him, and I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I didn't tell him I don't know. I just sat on the email. Because it's like, it's like, okay, if I open for T.J. Miller, am I condoning rape and violence? Or am I just taking a set in a toxic environment and doing my own jokes, doing my own feminist jokes in that environment, right? Like, there's an interesting thing about that to consider. And... uh then I also thought, well, some other motherfucker is going to take that spot. <laughs> so why don't I do it, right? Like, why don't I do it? And that made everyone in Portland furious at me. Like, I even told people face-to-face before it, like, before it broke out on social media that I was going to do it. I'm like, hey, uh, noted powerful feminist in the Portland comedy scene, I'm going to do this show because I think it's cool to, like, take up space, okay? If I don't do that set, some other dude is gonna. And, like, why not have a queer disabled lady do it? You know, like, why not? Like, I'm taking up that space. That person didn't see eye to eye with me. And, um, oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy, did I get in trouble. Like, um, I've dealt with all of the furious like like everything that could be directed towards TJ was done to me instead you know like i was i was called like a transphobic rape apologist like heavy shit like it was gnarly it fucked with my career for a second i didn't check to say if i could swear or not i'm just going to keep on swearing um <laughs> But it was gnarly. Like, I've never... uh, Okay. 
Uh, I love feminism. I, I identify as a feminist. How many other people in the crowd identify as feminists? Hell yeah, we're all getting laid. Uh, so, <laughs> as you all know, as feminists, the first rule of feminism is to take down the patriarchy. And then the second rule of feminism is to tell everyone else they're not doing feminism as good as you. <laughs> yeah, that was a little too real. Um, so... <laughs> I got shit for it. Like, even I, I, I'm like writing a pilot with a director, with like my first choice of a director, the first person that I wanted to make a show with. And like, um, I told this one person that I was going to open for TJ, and I told them my reasons why. And then I, I, you know, like we were still driving in the car, like I thought we were friends, you know. And like, like then I'm like, oh hey, guess what? I'm also doing this other cool thing, uh, a lot cooler than that other thing. I'm doing a genuinely cool thing where like I'm making a pilot. I'm working with a director. I'm so excited about it. So first, that person outed me as the host slash rape apologist who's going to open for TJ at Helium. And then I find out later, a couple months later, after all of the dust um, sort of settles, but I'm still like walking around feeling paranoid, like, who thinks I'm an asshole? Which is a terrible mood to go into when we're about to perform comedy. Uh, <laughs> like, like... I found out that this person and a couple other people started texting the director that I was working with saying not to work with me over the situation, which is wild, right? Like, that's when it gets into a conspiracy. And that's when I was like, feminism's gone too far. And it made me feel like I was a commenter on Reddit, which is not cool. <laughs> I already dipped out of the show. I got enough pressure from people to where I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be perceived as anyone that would condone any sort of violence against women. I'm dipping out of the show. So that also hurt my reputation with the comedy club. This person who tried to like fucking ruin my career still works at the comedy club. That's who made money off TJ's show. Oh, isn't that weird? Okay, see, this is the grievance part. Like, <laughs> ethics are tricky. Comedy ethics are super tricky. And um, I think I changed the chemistry in Portland when I originally decided to do that show because I think people were like, oh, well, if Andy Main, the feminist revolutionary, is going to open for a rapist, all bets are off, right? Like... <laughs> And that wasn't my intention. Like, I'm, I'm not the hero in this story. I should have said that right off the bat. But um, a couple weeks ago, this really weird thing happened where Cat Williams was in town. Do you guys know who Cat Williams is? Yeah, he was in Friday. He's a funny comic. Terrible person. Um, he got arrested in Portland um, I think he had a dog and he was going to like try to get his dog to attack a Lyft driver. You know, it was hilarious. What a great bit. Very original writing. Uh, <laughs> like, so he got arrested in Portland. He had to stay in Portland um, during his, I, I don't, I've never been arrested. You have to stay where you get arrested at. He had to stay there. So he started going to the Helium open mic where I and a few other comics were performing that night. And, um, I knew Cat Williams was in the crowd, and I'm like, I'm going to do my edgiest shit. I'm going to do my edgiest shit for Cat Williams. We'll see how this goes. And then after the show, he told the management, he was like, I want that lady with the abortion jokes. She's TV ready. Okay, like, <laughs> that's literally what he said about me. 
I, I'm, this sounds like a weird-ass brag, but my abortion jokes were the favorite of Cat Williams of that night. Um, I'll give you guys a one-liner from it, just a little sample. It was, uh, it was that I don't understand why people have such a hard time with abortion. I love abortion because I hate traffic. That's the joke. Uh, so... Cat loved it. Uh, he loved it so much that he asked me and like three other comedians to open for him at the Roseland, which is like a 500 seat venue. Um, I got the text about it the night before the show was going to happen. And Cat has that kind of following where he can just tweet about a show, 500 people show up, right? So, like, um, I was nervous because it was very poorly organized because Kat's going through some shit, okay? <laughs> he's a manic motherfucker and he has a really long rap sheet. He's he's abused a lot of people. Uh, he's a violent dude. And I was like, well, this guy likes me. That's great for my career. Uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I go on... Okay, here's the thing. Is that like... Cat wanted to introduce me, and that was supposed to be like a special moment in my career, my so-called career. Like, like to have Cat be like, "Hey, I like this lady. Here's, you know, why I like her, and here she's about to go on stage." But what happened is that the show was so poorly organized that um, the MC of the night was this like white hip hop rapper dude. He was wearing a suit. And then sneakers and a baseball hat at a peculiar angle. Okay, real douchebag. Like, you guys can tell he's a fucking douchebag. He opened the show with his rap video, which was fucking terrible. I like rap, and that shit sucked. And uh, then um, he's stalling. Like, he's treating each comedian that goes on stage as if we're in a rap battle with each other. <laughs> as if we have to, like be the funniest of two you know he's like oh well that chick she wasn't funny but that motherfucker was like like that's how he was emceeing the show there was no love in his heart for the art of comedy and um so he gets on stage um 500 people are in the audience it's the biggest show i've ever done um he gets on stage and he's like all right cat williams is gonna be here any minute like just wait you guys cat williams it's gonna be cat's first time on stage that evening so that'll get the crowd fucking pumped and uh cat was literally too busy getting his dick sucked <laughs> go on stage and introduce me so this is the intro I got. I got, um, I got, all right, Cat Williams is going to be here any minute. And he, like, checks his earpiece. All right, any second now. And he's, like, pacing back and forth. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I don't know where he is. Here's Andy Main. And that was my intro. I walked into that room, a 38-year-old woman who was excited to perform comedy for audiences I don't normally get to perform for. I walked out of that room. I don't even know what to describe. I walked out of that room like I felt like my mom, okay? <laughs> like, I was like, oh, you're a 38-year-old woman. You've been raising three children by yourself your whole life, and they're starting to rebel on you, and you're trying to scream it. It went terribly, you guys. I ate so much shit. Like, everyone let me get a couple lines out, and then they just started talking over me, and it was like, the worst open mic of my life. Um, so what I'm saying, the whole point of this grievances thing, 
just don't work with predators, okay? <laughs> they will fuck you over every goddamn time. Thanks so much, everybody. I'm Annie Main. Our next storyteller is Crystal Akins. She was a storyteller at our first ever Superthank event. Crystal is the director of Community Music Mission, an organization dedicated to creating artistic platforms for musical expression by creating music programs and projects that create connection and community. She is also a spiritual director and a death doula. Thank you. <laughs> okay. In 2014, I gave birth to my daughter, Alberta. And I brought a picture to pass around. <laughs> I've never felt so much love in my life. When my daughter was about 10 months old, eight people in my community and my family died. I'm trying to set this up like a Disney movie, so there's birth and life and then death. <laughs> Remember that feeling when Littlefoot's mom dies in the land before time? Or when Simba's dad dies in The Lion King? Well, that's how I felt when my Aunt Tammy died. I brought her ashes. We can pass these around, too. <laughs> it's okay. She loved people. She'd love this. <laughs> my Aunt Tammy was a person of unconditional love. When she died, I felt alone. That type of loneliness when you've arrived on the other side of something. My Aunt Tammy held my heart stories, and I held hers. I've never watched someone close to me die before. In my work as a therapeutic musician, I'm around death daily, but I never experienced what it felt like personally. When I visited my aunt in the hospital, she told me that she was afraid to die. In my heart, I knew she had the courage because she was on her death journey. Tammy wanted to die at home. Family and friends prepared her room that Tammy would die in. We put up pictures and artwork from the, the kids, loving quotes and memories all over the wall. Hospice is amazing. They were on call for grief and loss support and made Tammy comfortable as she died. Tammy's death reminded me of birth. Many people in the house waiting holding her, sharing stories, singing, eating, crying, and more waiting. I remember watching Tammy's body, heavy, shallow breaths, and watching her eyes until I did not see her in them any longer. I was not prepared for this. What brought me through this was loving my daughter. However, I struggled with balancing the feelings of birth and death within my being. I had to nurture my baby, but felt so much pain from death of the people who nurtured me. My aunt's death was a pivotal life moment. It was the moment I decided to be a death doula. You know how I described Littlefoot and his mom and Simba and Musafa? <laughs> Just like them, the grief was the beginning of my journey. My grievance became my path of discernment. I invite all of you to look grief in the eyes and take its hand because grief loves you and is telling you to pay attention. When you choose to pay attention and use grief as a guide, 
you will come through. And on the other side of grief is life. The way I healed the imbalance of death and life in my body is I accepted them both as the same, as one, as my humanness. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Dan McDaniel. He is a four-time Business Achievement Award recipient, Horatio Alger Association of Distinguished American Scholar, former chapter president and national delegate of Future Business Leaders of America, and former spokesperson for the EPA's It's My Environment Earth Day initiative. He has also starred in MTV's Emmy award-winning documentary series, True Life. So before I get started, I have to know, Who's excited for the holidays? Anyone? Anyone? Losers. I'm not excited for the holidays. You know why? Because all week long, I've been asked the same question over and over again. Dan, what are you doing for the holidays? What are you doing for Thanksgiving? And you know my answer? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And let me tell you why, all right? The holiday season is about three things. Consumerism, conformity, and celebration. That's it, consumerism. First of all, back in the day, I used to work at Walmart. Fun stuff, fun stuff. In my first and last ever Black Friday, I remember it was the craziest thing. There were so many people, I was overwhelmed by the number of people. And it was like the line at Voodoo Donuts, times 100. Yeah. And I walked in, and people were fighting over towels. Okay? Towels. Yeah, not TVs, not smartphones, but towels. I remember my coworkers just tossing out the towels and the people attacking them like a pack of wolves attacking ribeye steaks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you see, you might know about Black Friday, but what you don't know about is Sad Saturday. It's, it's a real thing, yeah. That's the day after Black Friday. You see, the day when everyone feels guilty and full of regret, and now they're back in the store, in the customer service line, waiting for four hours to take all of their stuff back. Yeah, yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah, consumerism. Second, conformity. I mean, what's the reason why we really celebrate the holidays? Is it because we get off work? Is it because we don't have to go to school? Probably. Or is it about religion or tradition? Maybe a little bit. But really, it's about the fact that everyone's doing it. Everyone's celebrating the holidays, so we do it too. It's fantastic. Lastly, celebration. Now, I'm all for celebration. I believe in having a good time, having fun. But the thing is, a lot of us forget that we can celebrate every single day. You see, Thanksgiving, it's a celebration of gratitude. Valentine's Day, it's a celebration of love. New Year's Day, it's a celebration of new beginnings. But the thing is, every second, it's a new beginning. 
Every second, we can choose love. Every second, we can choose to be grateful. So thanks a lot, holiday season, for pissing me off. (laughs) And most importantly, for helping all of us realize that every day is a celebration. Thank you. Our eighth and final storyteller is Bruce Livingston. Bruce is the executive director of Playwright Inc., a nonprofit focused on combining established theater practices and neuroscience research with engaged and invested coaches to best serve the needs of the youth. Playwright's professional coaches and actors work one-on-one with youth at the edge. Participants write and direct their own character-driven plays. By creating powerful original art, writers learn profound emotional tools to trust themselves, manage their trauma, and heal. Come with me for a minute, okay? It's a hot summer day. I'm sitting in my third floor office in a stuffy brick building, staring at the computer, waiting for something good to happen, looking at the email. For the previous six weeks, seven weeks, I've been trying to find a group of refugee kids in Multnomah County somewhere that we can do a playwriting workshop with. For two years before that, we'd been working with a terrific summer school program that had those kids and we worked with them. It was great, but that year they'd lost their funding. So I was struggling. I reached out to every refugee group I could find in Portland and they all said, oh, this sounds great, but it's too much. We don't have the bandwidth. They were understaffed and the demand was high. We've got this great program that that Jeff described and I think, what the hell? Why, Why aren't people just jumping on this, coming on board? And I I realize I'm getting pissed off at the world and at myself. You know, why haven't I figured this out? Why can't I make it work? Why can't I put it together? And right there as I'm really down in the dumps, an email pops up and it's from Manuel Padilla and he says, I've got three Syrian refugee girls that are interested in the workshop. He connected me with Omar Rita, a psychiatrist from Libya who's been here in Portland and works with refugees. I dashed over, we met. And after a couple of hours, he said, yeah, let's do this. So we set a date for the workshop two weeks from then. I rushed back to the office, started putting a team of coaches together to, to do this thing. And then I get an email from Omar. He says, I've got eight girls that want to do it, eight kids that want to do it. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> That's more than we can do, man. We can do six maybe, but... These are young kids, there's a language barrier, we're gonna have to use interpreters, I don't, we can't, six, six max, okay. So fast forward, day one of the, of the workshop, I meet with the coaches before it starts and we're huddling it up and I'm, I'm on edge because the night before I've gotten an email from a coach saying she's had a death in the family and she won't be able to be, participate in it. We're down one, I'm slightly freaking out. The coaches, God bless them all, they're kind of trying to talk me off the cliff. You know, it's, it's going to be all right. We're going to be fine. And, and then the kids come in. and Three little girls in crisp white hijabs and four boys coming in, marching stiff. They're all nervous as hell as they would be. You know, they're coming into a strange place, meeting strange people they've never seen before. And I'm taking this in, all of a sudden the numbers add up, and I say, wait a minute, they're seven. 
seven, this won't do. So I took Omar aside and I said, Omar, we can't do it. We're shorthanded. We've got all the stuff with in, interpreters. It's going to slow us down. We can't do more than six. That's just it. And he put his hand on my arm and said, I understand, Bruce. It's, I understand. But that young boy over there, he's been through unimaginable trauma. And we can't separate him from his sister. You've got to let him stay. Yep. <laughs> got to do it. I don't know how the hell we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. And I look over, and the coaches are all engaging the kids. That's going well. And I'm scrambling, and I go grab the interpreters. I've just met them moments ago. Gutaiba, Oase, Basil. I say, thanks, you guys. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're going to be interpreting. And also, you're going to be coaches. <laughs> and they look at me like I'm crazy, which, of course, I was at that moment. And <laughs> I said, don't worry, guys. Don't worry. We'll, we'll talk you through it. We'll keep you, you know, we're not going to leave you out in the dust. It's going to be great. going to be fine. And off we went. We started. We, we did it. And after the first hour, we always take a break and give the kids good, healthy snacks. And I huddled with the coaches and I said, uh, listen, guys, what we got to do is hang on to our core principles, hang on to the real basics of what we do, that every word, every thought, the emotions, the story, it all comes from the kids. It's all theirs. But all those fancy rules, all that clever stuff we've practice and worked on for years about how we get there, that's out the window. You're on your own. Let's make it happen. When the day ended, I figured we'd survived it. Everybody clapped and said they'd be back the next day, so that's good. And for the, for the next eight days, it went like that. And then it was performance day. The kids come and rehearse with professional actors they've never met before, but that goes okay. And, and then it's showtime. There's a full house, and the kids come up one at a time, and they introduce their play in English and in Arabic. And then they sit in the director's chair and watch professional actors perform their work. And the audience watches the show and also watches the kids. There weren't many dry eyes in there before the standing ovation. So I'd hit the wall a couple of, more than a few times. It had been traumatic, and I'd found myself seething with anger and distress, discomfort, but it worked. I was better for all of that. And so I've got a lot of people to thank, everybody that was involved in that. Manuel for believing in what we did and having the persistence to keep after it, to make it go, to Dr. Reda, who did the heavy lifting to get the kids there and get the interpreters there, to the coaches, Amazing coaches, Cecily, Eliza, Victor, Tracy, Christy, Jessica. They charted un unknown waters and, and made it work. It was magnificent. The interpreters, Oise, Basil Kataiba, and Hannah, they did everything we asked them to do, including performing a short scene from Death of a Salesman in Arabic. How cool was that? <laughs> yeah, they were a godsend. And, and then most of all, I want to thank the kids. Aisha, Ali, Aline, Fatima, Jamil, Muhammad, Saleh, 
their grace and their openness and their courage filled my heart and stay with me to this day. They taught me lessons in trust and letting go that'll be with me always. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Super Thanks' fourth annual airing of grievances. Special thanks to Crystal Akins, Beach Street Parlor, our Super Thank volunteers, and all our storytellers for making this show happen. Super Thank is a nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon. For more information on who we are, how to get involved, and how to host an event, visit superthank.org.